So how many of you have ever done uh, remodeling projects? Anyone raise your hand, remodeling projects? Yes. I am not a handy person. I don't remodel. I don't model anything. Let's be quite honest. So I just don't do that. And, and my father was very, very good at remodeling. He still is. And, 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 and he lives in Florida. And anytime he comes up to Ohio, I'm like, so dad, there's some things that I could use your help with, you know, things that have been broken for an ashamedly long time. And he says to me, you know, there's going to be a time where you're really going to have to understand how to do this. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> it's fine. But how many of you have ever built walls? Anyone ever done that? Build a wall, frame it out, you build it up? It's the purpose of a wall anyways in a home. You build up walls in homes to separate the rooms, right? And each room has its own purpose and kind of identity. You have the kitchen and there's a wall sometimes and then there's your dining room. The dining room is where you eat. Kitchen's where you prepare. You have a living room where you live. You have a toy room for your children or the whole house is a toy room if you have children like mine. And each of those rooms, are, they're all separated off. They all have their own little point, their own little purpose. Kids put up walls all the time, metaphorically, right? Or actually figuratively. I've traveled three uh, younger sisters. We travel from Florida to Pennsylvania uh, almost every year, at least once or twice after we moved to Florida. And then we would wall up in the car with toys and different things and a line down the middle. Do not come over here. I don't want to even see a pinky toe cross this line kind of thing. Is that, or if you had siblings and you shared a room, maybe put a line down the wall or down the, down the floor. That's kind of like a wall, right? I'm on this side, you're on that side, and nary the two shall, shall meet. If you've got an open floor plan in your home, it kind of defeats my purpose of talking about this, but... There's still bedrooms. You don't have an open floor plan for a bedroom, I don't think, at least. You know, there's bedrooms upstairs, and, you know, the kids have their bedroom. Mom and dad has their bedroom. And, and sometimes your child may come into your room and say, can I sleep with you? And, and you pat them on the head, and you say, no. No. <laughs> usher them right on back to their room again because they have their room and I have mine. We put up fences around our yards to keep our kids in and other kids out. Uh, we, have, we have all sorts of stuff. Sometimes we put up walls around our emotions. How many of you have ever done that? Where you wall in your emotions, and why do you wall in those emotions? You don't want people to see them. You may don't even want yourself to see them. Because if I look into that, that room of, of emotions, if I look into whatever that is, then I have to deal with it. And I have to be face to face with it. And I don't want others to see it because then they see the real me. And I'd rather them see the me that I want them to see. How many of you ever taken down a wall? Raise your hand to that. Now that's fun, right? That's sledgehammers, that's sawzalls. See, I know the tools, I just don't know how to use them. And you tear them down and now we've got an open floor plan. We've got a kitchen, dining room combo. And it says to the diners, you get to be a part of what I'm doing. I love that. That way they can see how I'm cooking and if they want to join in and help, I can say to them no because I work alone. But I mean, at least they feel welcomed as a part of the process and the whole thing, right? When you begin a remodel project, you have this renewed sense of plan and, and purpose. Last week... We talked about the cross of Christ in Matthew chapter 27. 
If this is your first time here, we are in a long sermon series that's about to come to an end here in a couple of, uh, of weeks. I don't know how much more I can get out of the cross of Christ, but I'm going to try. Uh, you know, you, so we're towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been walking along with this Gospel writer to come and see the stories of Jesus and to learn and to have a story to tell. And last week we came in and we, we went to the cross, we went to Calvary, we went to the feet and, and saw what was going on there. And I left you with this phrase that the cross is real. Like, don't ever just think that this is just some lofty thing that we hang in, in, in a sanctuary or we tattoo on ourselves or put a bumper sticker on a car. It's a very, very real moment in time. And the blessing that we have now being able to stare down at this moment, we can then have sermons that bring us back to Leviticus and to the Old Testament to connect the dots of the ancient activity that God has been doing and what he's bringing together here in the cross of Christ. But the people that were there living it as the moment is transpiring, they, I guarantee they were not thinking, oh, this is Leviticus. That's probably not in any way, shape, or form in their mind whatsoever. A trial has happened. A man has been found guilty, and we're seeing now the, the, the effects of that. That's all that they're putting together. But we were able to look down upon it as God's appointed time, this moment in time of where he offered up his son to be both the sacrificial lamb, the punishment for our sins, and the scapegoat who removes the sins from the world once and for all. And I ended it with verse 50 in Matthew 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. He died. So now today, we're going to look at some immediate events that happen right after that. Other gospel writers would have said that, uh, added some other phrases that Jesus says uh, at this moment. Matthew says he yielded up his spirit. Just before that, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other gospel writers said that he says, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I think the gospel of John says that he says it is finished. And that Greek word, uh, to tell stay, I'm probably butchered it, means it is accomplished. It is all done. And so Matthew then records immediately after this death what it is finished means. Today we're going to go to Matthew chapter 27 verses 51 to 55 and we're going to get a eulogy a commentary from God himself as to what it is finished means, as to what has just transpired. Have you ever been to a funeral and had an open mic and someone came up and gave a eulogy and you're thinking, oh my Lord, I'm never going to get out there to have my potato salad. <laughs> you ain't ever heard a eulogy until you heard it from God himself about his son in whom we just killed. It's kind of awkward, right? So, but God has this moment here where he does some things. And Matthew draws our attention. It's a commentary on what the cross has just accomplished. Yes, salvation, but oh, so much more. For the cross of Christ, as Matt said, opens up the way to salvation and tears down the walls of separation. The cross of Christ tears down the walls of separation. 
It gives us an open floor plan in God's home where we are now invited into the kitchen to see what he's doing and be a part of the meal that he has been preparing. You want to dive in? It's going to be fun and exciting. Let's go. All right, here we go. So let's dive in. If there are walls to be torn down, that meant that there were walls that were built, built, right? So go to Genesis chapter 3. There's a Bible in front of you in the pew. You may have a Bible that you brought. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Here's a hint. If you've never opened up the Bible before, Genesis is the first book, and so you don't got to go far. So go over there to Genesis chapter 3. I think it's page 3 and 4 in the pew Bible. Let's see where these walls have been built. Go all the way back to Genesis. Now, you know the story of Genesis. We've referenced it several, several times. There's Adam. There's Eve. They're the beloved creation. Before the, they did the big oops, they were blessed. They lived in harmony with God, face-to-face -face communion with him. He has set them up to be vice presidents of the creation that he has made. He wants them to work the land. He wants them to reproduce. He's entrusted them with all those things, has given them freedom with boundaries, saying, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and everything's fine. Of course, we then know what happened. They got a little snacky snack. They're a little hungry. And they ate from the tree of good and evil, and all hell broke loose. This is where we pick up our story. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3 in the book of Genesis. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you had your own Bible, you'd underline that. That's wall number one. We're building a wall. They knew that they were naked, and what did they do? They covered themselves. Then, in verse 8, they heard a sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You'd underline that. That'd be wall number two. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. The woman in whom you gave to me gave me fruit and I ate. You underline that, it's another wall. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so then God goes through and he gives the punishment to the serpent about crawling on the belly and anemone between him and the woman and your offspring um, will, will bruise your head and, she shall, and you shall bruise his heel. There's that whole Jesus imagery there. But I'll call your attention now to the punishments to the woman and the man. To the woman, verse 16, God says, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. I'd underline that as well as a wall. But she, excuse me, but he shall rule over you. And then to Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded that you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth of you, and ye shall eat plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face ye shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Underline another wall. And the man called his wife named Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man was becoming like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, he cannot, they cannot become like me. They know good and evil. They're tainted now. They cannot have eternal life. Therefore the Lord God sent him out, Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life, underline another wall. As you go through the punishments of the fall of man, we begin to see the separating walls that this now forms. Because the fall of man is a complete disobedience from God, which means there's a schism, there's a break, there's a separation at the hands and the deception of the evil one. Do you know the word Satan in Latin, Diablo, means the splitter, the one who separates See, the, say the evil one likes the separation because the more that he can get God's creation away from, from the Lord, from the truth, the more we wallow in our depravity and in our sin. Through Christ we can do all things, but separated from him we can do nothing. And so we have these walls. You have the wall of shame and guilt. That's the fig leaves that cover the nakedness and the trees that they hide behind. They are aware of their own embarrassment. They know something is wrong. And then you have the wall of hostility. The wall of hostility between us and God and between us and each other. So when, when he says, when the woman says, or excuse me, when Adam says, the woman in whom you gave to me is a hint at that hostility. When God says to the woman, you shall live in, your, your will will be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. This is hostility between man, between man and woman, but just between all of humanity. What's the story that follows immediately in Genesis 4? Anyone remember? Say it out. Cain and Abel, brothers, and what happens to that one? It's a regular old family reunion, but, you know, with more lethal, you know, whatevers. And so Cain kills Abel. There's that hostility that is between. It's the, always it's the one-upping. It's got to be the best, got to be the one over. So there's this wall of hostility between us and the Lord, you did this, and between us and each other. And then there's the wall of death and eternal separation from God where he says to Adam, from the ground you've been taken and dust you will return. That's the eternal separation. And then the cherubim with the flaming sword that has to fall on somebody. Judgment's got to fall. But you can't get past the sword and have that tree of everlasting life until that judgment happens. And so there's this wall of eternal separation an eternal death that has been made. Well, this is cheery, isn't it? 
But this begins at separation, and that's why we have the need for the curtain, which we're going to see in just a minute. We have the need for the curtain in the Holy of Holies in the temple that keeps man away from entering into the place that is most holy to experience the presence of God. It's the need for Moses to only see the backside of God because he can't handle it seeing him face to face. It's the need for the burning bush instead of God just coming and talking to him. There's the separation. There's the atonement, the sacrifices. Depraved man is full of sin, and that separation has been caused by that. Our sinfulness erects the walls that keeps us from God, but the cross of Christ changes all of that because it does what? It tears down the walls of separation. How many of you right now, you don't have to raise your hand, are living in a time where you have walled up against God? Where you have piled up as many distractions, as many priorities, as many vices, as many as anything that you can just so that I don't have to, you're on your side of the car, God, I'm on my side of the car, don't even let me see a big toe wander over here. I've been in places like that. I've been in places like that where I don't, I just, because if, if I let him in, if I let him see, I got a deal. I don't want a deal. But that's what, this is what, this is the outcome of the fall. This is what it does. It speaks to our minds that we don't need the Lord and we separate. And the more that we separate from him, as I said, the more we wallow in our depravity, the more that we try to do things and accomplish nothing. So if human depravity builds walls of separation, then the sacrifice of the purest human that ever lived is going to tear those walls down. The purest human who has ever lived, who did nothing wrong, who suffered the most heinous death, Jesus. And that brings us to the, to the crux of our message today. How did these walls like Jericho come tumbling down? And it was the cross of Christ and in God's eulogy and his commentary to the world of what the cross accomplished. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 to 55. So we're not at the resurrection yet. Still up there on Calvary. It's, things have gotten very real, very traumatic, and now God has something to say. So 27, verse 51 to 55, page 992. So verse 50, Jesus cried out again, loud voice, yielded up his spirit, he dies. And behold, see, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have that recorded. All three. John doesn't, but that's okay. John's focusing on some different things at the cross, which is fine. But the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have this included here. Torn from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So we got a little bit of a zombie thing going on here, but not really. I'll explain. 
Then verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, other Romans, the, the guard, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. They were filled with fear and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And there were also many women there looking on them from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we have our walls, the walls of shame and guilt, the wall of hostility, and the wall of death, eternal death. God gives a commentary on this. Let's see these walls come tumbling down. The first thing, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. We already have discussed that that curtain was in the temple that stopped people, unclean people, unworthy people from coming beyond the curtain to where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat was. We talked last week about how the high priest Aaron had to do all these sacrifices in order to just be able to go in there and sprinkle the blood and do all those things so that he can be worthy of doing that. Well, now Jesus, the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat, he wipes all of that clean. And the curtain is torn in two. And now salvation has now been made open to everyone. Anyone can enter. You all can come in. It's the open floor plan, right? He knocks down a wall. Now you get to come in and be a part of what I'm cooking and what I'm doing. You no longer have to do the sacrifices to be clean because last week, once and for all, that sacrifice has been made. You just need to have faith and believe and you can walk right on up and talk to God, pray to him, lay it on his shoulders. The way has been made open. In the Old Testament, there was this guy named uh, Uzzah, I'm probably butchering his name, but he was carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and he tripped and, and kind of like stumbled and put his hand on it. You're not supposed to do that because he's dirty. He hasn't done the proper things. And he puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. You know what happened to him? He died. So it's pretty serious stuff in the Old Testament about being unclean and coming anywhere near this. And so they have that curtain to stop you. They used to tie a rope around the priest as he's going in behind the curtain. Just in case he were to pass out, die, or whatever, they can pull him out without defiling themselves going back in. That's how serious they took it. So God, at the death of his son, he rips that curtain in two. Because the sacrifice has been made once and for all. The cleanliness has been poured out upon us of the spilt blood. And we who have faith can approach boldly, boldly approach and experience him there. So down comes the wall of shame and guilt. The next wall was the wall of hostility. Hostility between us and, us and God and hostility between the people's. Well, that's a replay of the curtain. I don't have to go into, uh, into it more. The curtain tearing also ends the hostility between us and God. We can approach now. We're clean to do that. We don't need to go into that. Now, how does it end the hostility between people? And I'm talking about the hostility between different nations, different ethnicities, different genders, male and female. The cross 
brings all of that down. How? Well, who do we see at the foot of the cross getting it right when no one else did? Who was it? The centurion guard. Remember at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there was the centurion who had this profound statement of faith. Surely you can heal just by calling it out because there's something special about you. Don't also miss that the Gospel of Matthew begins his Gospel with Jesus being born and who's coming to the table but the Magi, the Gentiles, who experience him, give him gifts, and leave a different way. And now at the end of the gospel, the Gentiles coming here and getting it right. Now their profession of faith is raw and somewhat wrong. It is theologically incorrect, but God's okay with that because here it's, it's recorded here as something very, you need to see that by the centurions saying what they said is the image of the first church being brought together of every nation and every tribe and every tongue that is coming together to profess Jesus as Lord. It is no longer an Israel thing. It is now opened up to everybody. And they say, truly this was a son of God. Our Bibles have corrected the language and put thee, but in the Greek it's not thee. It's theos weus. It's God, son. It's translated a son of God. So here they've witnessed it all and they say truly this was, past tense, wrong, is a son of God. No, the son of God. And as I read a commentary on this, we let the Romans off the hook because what this shows is that even this raw, unedited response of faith is still blessed and is still recorded as the power of the cross bringing the world together and ending that hostility between nations, between ethnicities. And so what do we take from that in our world today with all the racial upsetness that's going on, with everything that's happening? We need to preach that. Because at the foot of the cross, there is no one ethnicity better than the other. We all come sinners with the common sin, and we all come and leave with the common salvation once and for all. No one's better than any other person. And so when we see that out there, we need to let folks know. In the sight of the Lord, we're all one family. All sinners saved by the same grace of Christ. The cross ends that hostility. And it also ends the hostility of the division between men and women as well. How do I see that? Because Matthew takes it a moment, so do other gospel writers, take a moment to roll call who is at the cross. And who is at the cross? Who is it? Women. Women. Now the gospel of John puts himself there as well. So that kind of flies in my example a little bit. But at the same breath, when Jesus is resurrected, it's the women who are there, and it's the women who are sent out to go and get the disciples and bring them here. Now, the writers did this, put that in there, because it validates their story for sure. Women didn't have a true testimony, and so by them putting it in there, it validates what they're saying, because they would never put that in there if they wanted it to be known as true. And Matthew says these women followed and ministered with Jesus. Followed in the Greek is disciple. 
and minister is deacon. That's the words that are used there. They followed and they deaked with Jesus. Our whole information about the cross of Christ and what happened up there on Calvary, most, most definitely, at least a lot of it, is coming from the eyewitness testimony of the women. May we never forget that. It's a strong argument for the validation of females in church leadership. Because right here at the cross, they're witnessing it, and they're telling it, and then at the resurrection, they're going to witness, and they're going to tell. Now, the last one, and i got to end up here quick, is the wall of death and eternal separation. So now you remember in Matthew here, there is that weird little passage, right? There's a weird little verse there where dead people came out of the graves and were walking around just scaring folks. Historians, historians want to say that this, that Matthew's speaking metaphorically here, that that didn't happen. He wants to draw our attention. He wants to draw our attention to the effects of the resurrection. I mean, it even says there in past tense, after the resurrection, they went with him into the holy city. So we're getting resurrection stuff before the resurrection actually happens. And people who take it literally are saying, listen, if Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead and God can raise Jesus from the grave three days later, then it's not a far stone to throw to say that there may have been people who came out of those graves and, and visited folks and then went with the Lord when he ascended. The point of this is that the cross brings a death to death itself. So it's not dust you will return, it's a resurrected body you will receive because of what Jesus did and accomplished here on the cross and then three days when he rises again. So you see here, God's commentary on what is happening here is salvation has been now made possible for anyone and you all can come. But any walls that you're putting up to separate me from you is futile. They're gone. You are worthy to approach. You are worthy to bend a knee in strong faithful humility and profess a faith to Christ and receive everything that he is offering. Now, what is our story to tell here with this? Our story to tell here with this is quite simply putting everything together from these last two days, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away all our sins and paid the eternal price, and he removes and tears down the walls of separation and opens the way for the same salvation for all humanity, to preach and teach and live out the gospel as faithfully as that wherever we go. That's our story to tell. And that as often as we do this, as often as we live that out, and as often as we partake in what we're about to partake, what does the Apostle Paul tell us that we proclaim? Christ's death until he comes again. That's the power of the gospel. So come and see the Lord crucified. Come and see the Lord buried and died. And then next week, let's come and see him raised again for the truth that death has been put to death. The hostility between us and God and each other is gone. And there is no shame and guilt for those who find their salvation at the cross. The cross tears down walls. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you again for your amazing truth and how the gospel, the simple proclamation of the gospel, tears down the walls that we have been trying to, to build up to keep you out from our lives. And the more that we preach that and the more that we live that out, the more light we shine in this darkened world, the more it begins to provide cracks and fissures in people's walls. And the light bleeds in and they realize that you have been calling after them and that you've gone to great lengths to make sure that they can experience your son's salvation through his blood and sacrifice. May we never, ever, ever forget that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night in which he was to be betrayed, he took his the disciples together, and he took the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's modeling for them what is about to happen on the cross that we just talked about. And then in the same manner, he took the cup, which is the cup of salvation, and he poured out the wine. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. And as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul says that as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. You live it out. There's power in what we're about to do here today as a church, as a body of Christ. This is the gospel that we are taking in and reminding our hearts of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us. Lord, we give you thanks for this meal we give you thanks for your sacrifice. We give you thanks for the great lengths that you have gone to make sure that we can experience salvation and one day be at the true table with you. That open floor plan all together at that table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd invite you to take of the bread, the body of Christ broken for you, and to drink of the cup, the blood of Christ shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins.